Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Comfort Zone. As usual, we begin with a quote from Neil Donald Walsh, Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. In this series, we typically feature individuals who have stepped outside of their comfort zone to overcome barriers and achieve success. And usually, I am behind the microphone interviewing someone else. But this time, I decided to step in front of the microphone and tackle a very uncomfortable subject. Recently, I participated in a virtual panel discussion on race in America. And I was uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. First, I'm still working on finding my voice and honing my public speaking skills. And this would be my first time speaking to such a large audience. This was a group of approximately 1,000 attendees. And secondly, as an immigrant, I wasn't sure if I would be able to accurately represent the Black American experience in such a short space of time that was allotted for each question. I will place some of the sound bites of my responses, which is just a small segment of a one and a half hour conversation where other panelists from diverse backgrounds eloquently shared their experiences and their perspectives on various topics surrounding race. I want to put this disclaimer out there that as an immigrant from the Caribbean, I share a common history of colonialism and slavery as with African-Americans. But I want to thank my cousin Rosie for reminding me a few months ago that we did not face the same level of post-slavery oppression that Black Americans endured under the Jim Crow laws of segregation. So the views that I expressed here are from my perspective as an immigrant. I do not pretend to fully grasp the magnitude of the generational oppression faced by African-Americans, but I'm still listening and learning. As immigrants, we face discrimination, which I consider collateral damage from a more deep-rooted problem of racism. And, and this is a, a problem of racism that is rooted in the history of this country. While I chose to migrate to America, African-Americans whose ancestors were kidnapped and enslaved, had no such choice. I believe that if we go to the root of the problem and remove the ugliness of racism, the issue that we as immigrants face will also be resolved. I do believe that it is time to focus on the African-American experience. I want to also touch on a question that was posed to other panelists. And the question was as follows. Why is it offensive to say, I do not see color? Let me say that I had no idea this was an offensive statement. Since, as you may recall, I used it in a previous podcast episode to describe my friend Dan. But now that I know that this can be ambiguous, I will refrain from using that term going forward. When I referred to Dan as someone who does not see color or gender, 
I simply meant that he sees beyond color and gender and see people for who they are. But now I understand that this might be viewed as not appreciating people for their differences. I like what one of my very insightful colleagues at work shared with me on this subject. He said that there are two different perspectives here. One is not judging a book by its cover, and the other is appreciating the book in its entirety. But both require reading the book to understand it. Quite profound, I must say. Well, let's get right into the, the clips of the my responses at the conference. And let me just share with you the questions that I was responding to. Number one um, question was, employees who aren't black may not be aware of the challenges dealing with structural racism. What is one thing you want to know about this experience? With, and the second one is, with all the conversations about race lately, what do you think has been missing from those events? What is the most profound thing you have learned? And finally, the wrap-up question was, share an experience you have had with people of different races or ethnicities that left you feeling hopeful for you and your community. So let's get right into the podcast. The first segment will be an introduction of who I am, and then I'll go into answering the questions that I, that I just read. Well, I hope this conversation will help you to begin other conversations in your sphere of influence and in fact, hopefully to effect changes going forward. Good afternoon, everyone. If you haven't detected it yet from my accent, I was born in Jamaica, migrated to the United States a few decades ago. And as you can imagine, my perspectives on race has been shaped by my background and again by my entry into the United States. So the Caribbean, um, of which Jamaica is a part, shares a common history with, with America in that uh, we were colonized, we experienced slavery. And while as an outgrowth of colonialism, there is some semblance of colorism where there's a, the sense that people of a lighter shade are given preferential treatment, we never experience the level of racism that happens in America. So here I was growing up in Jamaica, where I'm part of the majority, where my blackness is celebrated. I migrated to a country where I'm part of a minority and my blackness is treated as a badge of shame. I grew up in Jamaica thinking I can do anything I set my mind to, limited only by economics. And so I came to America for a better economic opportunity, but at every turn, I keep getting the message that I cannot be all that I want to be because I'm black, because I'm an immigrant, and because I'm a woman. Racism takes a toll on your self-image, on your self-confidence, and your self-worth. And I'm sorry if I'm, I'm a little emotional, but this is the impact of, um, of racism. My DNI director says it best um, when he recently shared that once you encounter racism, it sticks to you like duct tape. Painful as it might be, we must remove this. And this conference, I believe, is a great start, and I look forward to hearing from my fellow 
uh, panelists hearing their shared experience, and most importantly, to hear the way forward. Where do we go from here? Thank you. Um, to, to understand the black experience in America, we have to look at the history. And, and Chris shared some really powerful statistics with you, but I wanna take it, uh, 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 take it back a little bit to the very beginning. And I wanna to touch on something that, um, that my, my colleague said earlier, um, who immigrated from India, that you're treated as if you don't belong. And it's so unfortunate because we're all immigrants. The founding fathers were immigrants, right? So colonialism began in the 1400s with people coming from Europe to, to America as, as, um, as immigrants. And they forcibly kidnapped Africans from Africa, some six to seven million over the period of, of slavery, over to approximately 250 years of slavery. And they, they robbed them of their identities, separated them from their families, forced to work on plantations to build the wealth of America, a wealth that they had no um, way to partake in. So there is that systemic racism beginning from slavery. Then we had independence. And what is so ironic is that the War of Independence included some 5,000 black soldiers who fought for the liberation of America and um, for a declaration of independence that says all men are created equal, but it did not apply to them. And then we have another um, era where we had the Emancipation Proclamation, the, the 13th Amendment, um, where on paper, blacks were free, but we also, they faced another 100 years of segregation. So we're talking some 350 years of oppression. And while, you know, the civil rights movement was very effective in causing those laws to, to be passed to end segregation, but as we can see, and as Chris so eloquently shared, the, the ravages of, of, of that era still persist. We're now 50 something years after the civil rights movement, but you know, like the, the, the moderator said up, up front, it's almost like history is repeating itself. And that is very sad. Um, one of the, the things I learned recently was that the systemic disenfranchising of, of blacks from property, it was legal. Um, I got this really great book um, recently. It's called The Color of Law. It's by Richard Rothstein. And the subtitle is A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. So legally, folks were in white suburbs were given subsidies and they were prohibited from selling those properties to blacks. In the meantime, the blacks were relegated to the crime-ridden, um, low-income um, areas in, 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 in the urban areas. So it's not just a matter of people being prejudiced and people staying in their own silo where they're comfortable. It was law. So to get beyond that, we need to make concerted efforts to break that cycle. Um, you know, we all are aware as, as homes and how important it is for home ownership to, to be part of the, the process of building wealth. So it's, um, it's, it's the systemic racism based on history, but I also wanna give you an analogy of what my impression is of structural racism. 
imagine you are on an escalator. There's an up escalator and there's a down escalator. So for blacks in America, it's like constantly going up the down escalator. You have to work twice as hard to progress forward. And at times you're going nowhere really fast. Sometimes you'll trip, you'll fall to the bottom. Sometimes you get knocked down. It is difficult. It is stressful. It is exhausting. A few manage to beat the escalator and get to the top. A few others may get a helping hand to go onto the up escalator. But for the most part, it's an uphill climb. There is not nearly enough of those of us who get on the up escalator, not nearly enough of us who beat the, the, the speed of the escalator and get to the top. So structural racism, it puts you on that, on that um, down escalator and, and, and wonders why you cannot progress as, as your um, white counterparts. So that's, um, that's my perspective on, on structural okay. racism. You know, thank you for that. So, you know, the, the events of this year have been profound. First, we had the pandemic and we saw the, the gaps and the disparities in health and wealth, um, the impact that this had on the black and the brown community, you know, which was so severely if affected by, by the coronavirus. And then we had the series of murders of black men and women. We think of... Uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. And, but the, the, I think the most horrific was the murder of George, George Floyd, which captured the attention of the world. It, it broke out um, protests all over the world, lots of conversations. And those conversations were great in bringing awareness to, I, I think it was him who said, you know, this problem existed before. It has existed for centuries. But I think because we're in the pandemic and we're all focused on our, our screens, the impact is so great. So now there's a spotlight and now there's a conversation. And while those things are great, we, I think, need to move beyond conversations and now start to take action. And in, in terms of the pr police brutality, some stats that I saw from the Washington Post are as follows. There are approximately th uh, less than 13% of the U.S. population are black. And yet more than twice the amount of blacks are killed at the hands of police than whites. So something has to change. And I know people talk about defunding the police, but it has to be more than that. It's going to take overhauling the system. It's going to take retraining or replacing, but it has to be more than just defunding the police. Not all cops are bad. We know that. But the system does need to change. But beyond... Um, police brutality. We also need to address the fundamental issues of structural racism. We've heard a lot about that in, in all these discussions today. And I think we need a comprehensive plan of action. And this would include collaboration between different races, different sectors, the health sector, financial institutions, technology, grassroots community organizations, and even the government. And I have seen some institutions take steps in the, in the right direction, and that's very encouraging. And I know the bank system, we are very focused, it's at the core of our, our mission, our values, to, to empower um, our, our communities to, to, to advance in home ownership, to focus on diversity and inclusion. But again, 
some of those um, larger plans may not always happen in the time that we want it to happen. So there are things that we as individuals can do at our local banks, in our communities. And I'm going to quote one of um, Arthur Ashe's um, quotes that says, use what you have. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. And that, I find, is very profound. I mean, in our diversity and inclusion committee at work, you know, we've been learning that it's, it's okay to start small as long as you're progressing in the right direction. So systemic racism and its effects are overwhelming, but we have to take positive steps in, in peeling off that duct tape one, one step at a time. Okay. I alluded to this earlier about our workplace inclusion committee. The kind of dialogue that we have there, they're candid, they're sometimes uncomfortable, but we're willing to be uncomfortable to do the work. And to know that I have a group of people that I work with, that I spend most of my waking hours with, that understand the problem, are willing to work at it, and understand that it is not a black problem, it's not a white problem, it's an American problem. And it is all of us together taking steps to effect the change. So we're working on programs to not only build awareness, but actually do tangible um, work within the workplace and in the communities um, that we serve. So that gives me a lot of hope. Thank you.